Morning, everyone. For those of you new here, I'm Chris Dirks, and I'm the main teaching pastor here at Southland, and uh, I'm going to start a new series here today and uh, go for a, I don't know, two, three, four weeks, not a super long series, but uh, I want to do a series about uh, the Bible. And some of you are going, uh, duh, <laughs> aren't all your messages? Well, generally when we preach messages here at Southland, we're just preaching messages, you know, from passages in the Bible, and we're not talking about the Bible itself. In this series, I want to talk about the Bible itself. And the big question I want to ask during this series, and I want to start asking today is, um, is this whole book, not just part of it, not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or the Gospels, or whatever, but is this whole book, Genesis to Revelation, and Malachi, and the Psalms, and everything in between, is this whole book really God's Word? And, and if it is, what does that even mean? What does it mean, God's Word? Like, how did we get this book? How did we get the books that are in here? Uh, how did we get, you know, why is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John in here, but the Gospel of Thomas isn't? Um, all kinds of questions like that. I want to look at the question of, uh, is this really God's Word, the whole thing? And what does that mean if it is really God's Word? Uh, some other things I want to tackle later in this series is, does this, uh, once we've talked about that, is it God's Word? Then we want to look at, does this thing have any errors in it? Does it have mistakes? Does it have contradictions? And lastly, I also want to talk about some of the weird bits that people uh, are bothered by in the Old Testament primarily. But we'll talk about some of the weird bits. But the big question is, um, is this book really God's Word? And, uh, but before I get into the content of the series, I want to spend the first half of this message just talking about why this series, I believe, is so important for, for this day and for this season and for this time. I think this is just a hugely, hugely important question for all of us as Christians to answer. And I don't just mean kind of partway. I think a lot of Christians these days are kind of halfway on it. I think it's God's Word. I think it's mostly God's Word. I think, uh, you know, big parts of it are God's Word, but they're not sure. And I want to show you today that you cannot be too confident in this book. It is so important what we as believers think about this book and what it is. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into why this is so important. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, you are, you are king of the universe. And I thank you for this book that you've given to us, one of the greatest gifts you gave us. And I just pray through this series, Lord Jesus, that as a church here at Southland, we, we will be a church founded on you and on your words. I pray that you would give us a passion for truth. I pray that you would give us a fear of the Lord, which leads us to be courageous in standing for the truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, why does it matter? Why should we study? Some of you are sitting there and you say, well, I already believe it's God's word. I already read it kind of regularly. Why does it matter that we go through a series asking this question if I already believe it? And I want to just show you four reasons why this really matters, this question. And the first reason is because we're staking our lives on the claims that are made in here. Was any of you here there when Jesus rose from the dead? Anybody? Nobody, nobody 2,000 years old here today? Does anybody here have family members, close family members, cousins, friends, who talked to the disciples and, uh, who, and you know, got firsthand accounts of, of how Jesus did miracles and how he died on the cross and the things he taught? Any of you have friends? No. Any of you there when Moses, you know, when the Israelites went across the Red Sea? Any of you there when David heard from the Holy Spirit and Isaiah and Jeremiah and some of the, you know, the doctrines of sin and what God's going to do in a new covenant and heaven, all sorts of stuff? Any of you there? Any of you hear that stuff? Any of you see that stuff? No. See, everything we believe about everything that really matters for eternity, we don't believe because we saw it or heard it or know someone for ourselves. Everything we believe about things that really matter for eternity, we believe for one reason, because it's in here. So it matters if we can trust this thing. And it doesn't just matter, is this thing mostly true? Is it a good book with some wisdom in it? It actually matters, is this God's word? Because there's lots of true books out there. There's lots of books with truths out there that I don't want to stake my eternity on. I won't die for them. 
But we are saying about heaven and hell and God and a forgiveness of sins and who God is, all of these things we know or we think we know because we read them in here, not because we saw them or heard them or were there for ourselves. So it really matters. This book, what we think about this book, is really the foundation for every single thing we believe. And if this book is not from God, if not just is it true, if this book is not from God, then we here today are of all people in the world most to be pitied. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If what we as Christians believe, if it's just make-belief, if it's just a few nice things, we are pitiable. You say, why are we pitiable? See, a lot of people in this world, a lot of athe- I've actually heard people say this. A lot of atheists and worldly people and non-Christians in this world, they think we believe this because it's like a feel-good pill. They think we're weak. They think we believe the truths in here because we need a crutch to get through life, and this book kind of just makes us feel good and helps us deal with stress in life. And what they don't realize is that this, the truths in here, are anything but a feel-good pill. Christianity is the opposite of a feel-good pill. You know what Jesus said? He said, Christianity is this, pick up your cross daily and follow me. Christianity isn't a fuzzy, warm feeling. It's about giving up our lives every single day, giving up our selfish desires to put other people and God's kingdom first. It's anything but a feel-good pill. To any of you, well, for some Christians, it is a bit of a feel-good pill, but to anyone who's truly a disciple of Jesus, this is anything but a feel-good pill. It's all about dying to yourself. And in return, guess what we get in return? In return for dying to ourselves and giving ourselves up so we can put other people first and God's kingdom first, you know what Jesus said? Here's his feel-good pill for the day. Luke 21, 16 to 17. In return for giving yourself up, this is what he says will happen to us. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Notice in there he doesn't even have enemies. I mean, that's just assumed. Your enemies won't like you. That's assumed. I don't even need to put that one in the message. But you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. All the people who love you and are around you, many of them will even turn against you if you give up your life for me. That's the feel-good pill. Feel-good pill. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. And so Paul says... If we're going through all of that, if we're dying daily to our selfish, wicked desires and putting other people first and putting God's kingdom first and putting all that money into God's kingdom and time into God's kingdom and energy and effort into God's kingdom and we're taking the abuse from maybe some of our coworkers or some of our family or whatever for what we stand for. And he says, if we're doing all of that just to be hated by people and just to suffer, and by the way, all of the heroes of the faith in here suffered. They were all hated They were all despised. Peter said, we're strangers and aliens, wanderers here on the earth. We don't fit in. And Paul says, if we're doing all of that for something that's made up, we're most to be pitied of all people. If we're doing that for a fairy tale, we are most to be pitied. So it matters. What do you think about this book? Is this whole thing from beginning to end really from God? because we're staking our lives on its claims. Second reason why it matters what we believe about the Bible and whether or not the whole Bible is trustworthy or not is because truth itself is being challenged. Uh, Our whole society today is aggressively, from top to bottom, is aggressively uh, challenging and attacking the idea that there is objective truth. And this isn't something that's just been happening for a year or two. Uh, you know, this is not a new phenomenon. I think this has probably gone on as long as there's been, you know, human civilization. Certainly it's been going on decades in our society. Back in the 1960s, there was, uh, you know, the whole sexual revolution, they call it. And people began to question objective truth. And since then, we've redefined, you know, what sexual morality should look like. Why should we have to go by this? This is old-fashioned. It's, it really doesn't work. It's actually hateful and intolerant in here. We're going to make up our own truth. 
We're going to make up a more tolerant, better feeling, nicer truth. And so since the 1960s, we've redefined sexual morality. We've redefined uh, what, a f- what a healthy family should look like, what the nuclear family should look like. We've redefined marriage. We're even redefining now what it means to be male and female. But we're, there's an attack, and not just in those areas, but in all kinds of areas, on what is objective truth. Is there objective truth? No, I think we can figure it out for ourselves. I mean, I could go through stat after stat after stat, but just in the last 40, 50 years, the result of this attack on objective truth has been devastating. But I mean, just anecdotally, you can talk to many teachers today, and, and, and you talk to some of them, and how they struggle to control their classrooms because how many kids, in, and, and to teach, because how many kids in their classrooms come from broken homes. And you go into the core, you go into the inner cities of any of our big cities across Canada, you go into the inner city of any of them, and you will find society absolutely crumbling. Drug use and despair and confusion and sexually transmitted diseases, you can see it all crumbling. The attack on objective truth really matters. Really, really matters. And in addition to all of this, our society is becoming increasingly intolerant of anyone who claims to know objective truth. I want to read you a quote I'm going to put up on the screen. Uh, Michael Novak wrote this in his book, First Things. I just read it this past week, and, and a phenomenal quote. He says this about our society's increasing intolerance of anyone who claims to know objective truth. There is no such thing as truth, they teach even the little ones. Truth is bondage. Believe what seems right to you. There are as many truths as there are individuals. Follow your feelings. Do as you please. Get in touch with yourself. Do what feels comfortable. Sound familiar? Those who speak this way prepare the jails of the 21st century. They do the work of tyrants. And all you have to do is go back and look at the last century, the 20th century, to see that that quote is perfectly true. It's perfectly true. You look at places like North Korea and China and, of course, you know, Nazi Germany and Soviet Union, many other places like that where the most unspeakable horrors have been committed. Mass murder, people in bondage, prison camps, all these sorts of things. And you'll find the same thing everywhere you go. You'll find that they have to throw out objective truth first before they can bring in their truth. And, of course, many people say to that, well, you're exaggerating, Chris. That could never happen here, right? I mean, we're different here. I mean, those people living in Germany in World War II, they were obviously evil people. We're different now. We're not like those people who were communists. We're, we're different. We would never do that here. Well, I certainly hope not. I pray not. But the thing you have to realize is nobody commits evil thinking they're going to be evil. Do you think many people, see, that's why, that's why he talks about it there, that it's when you get rid of objective truth, that's when tyranny comes in. Just a quick little, little bit of historical background here. You go back to the beginning of the 20th century, and you look at the millions of young people who signed up to be communists at the beginning there, uh, at the beginning of the Soviet Union. Do you think they signed up to be communists because people were handing out pamphlets that said, let's kill 10 million of our own people and put a fifth of our population in the gulag. And they all said, woo, what a great vision. I'm going for it. I love it. You think that's what people signed up for to be in the communist revolution? Not a chance. That's not why they signed up for it. They didn't wake up in the morning and say, we want to kill people and hurt people. You know how, why they signed up? Millions of people signed up for the communists, the Bolshevik re- revolution there. And I've read a uh, number of books by uh, Solzhenitsyn and others like him who lived in it. But the reason they signed up for it, you know why it started? They didn't like the gap between the rich and the poor. By the way, does that sound familiar to anyone? They don't like the gap between the rich and the poor. So they said, you know what we got to do? We got to have a more fair society. By the way, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? We want to create a society where everybody shares everything. We're going to create a society where nobody owns anything because we want everybody to be equal. Doesn't that sound great? It actually sounds a little bit like in Acts because in Acts, they were all sharing everything they had. They said, we're going to share everything. We're going to get rid of property ownership. We're going to live you know, communally. That's where communism gets its name. We're going to own everything communally. We're going to share. We're going to do all these sorts of things. We're going to create utopia. We're going to create paradise on earth. They had good intentions as far as human beings go. 
But in order to get to their utopian ideals, they said, first of all, we've got to throw religion because religion makes people ignorant, and we've got to throw God because these people hold to these old-fashioned ideas, and they won't make the radical changes needed to get to usher in this new society. So we've got to get rid of that stuff. So we've got to get rid of objective truth so we can bring in all this good we're going to do. And in the end, in their attempt to do good, they did absolutely horrific evils. And the fact of the matter is, that is true wherever human beings try to do good. Human beings start out thinking they're fighting for justice. They start out thinking that they're fighting for the little guy, that they're the ones doing right, that they're going to do good for everyone, that they're going to make it all even and equal. But if they try to do good in the absence of objective moral truth, human beings always end up doing evil. And that is why those who challenge the idea of objective moral truth are the ones who prepare the jails of the 21st century. They do the work of tyrants. And this is, why the Christian, this is one reason why the Christian church has to be strong on the Bible. Because the moment we get wishy-washy on this, uh, you know, if the Bible says something's wrong in here, is it wrong? And we start to get wishy-washy on I don't know. Is this really God's word? Did he really mean what he said when he said it was wrong in here? Maybe it's not wrong today. Maybe things have changed. Maybe we need to update. The moment we get wishy-washy on this and we start picking and choosing, well, I think this stuff's all done. I'm just going to hold to these bits here and these bits here and these bits here because those are the parts that I like. As soon as the church gets wishy-washy on this, we cease to be salt. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that he was leaving the church on the earth to be salt in the earth. What is salt? It's a preservative. And we are to be a preservative in our society, slowing down the absolute decay and, and crumbling of our society to slow it down in the days before Jesus comes back. We're supposed to actually stand for objective truth. That's what being salt is and what it means. But when the church gets wishy-washy on this, we lose our saltiness. And Jesus said, and then what good are we? Once salt has lost its saltiness, what good are we then? And that's why I think it's so dangerous, and that's why one of the reasons I'm preaching this message series is because in more and more churches, there are denominations and churches and various seminaries and college, colleges where they are now questioning, openly doubting and questioning whether this whole thing is from God. And the moment you begin to, to question all of that, what happens is the very foundation we're standing on begins to crumble. Can we really trust that if it says it's good in here, it's good? Can we really trust that if it says it's bad in here, it's bad? Can we really trust that this is actually from God's mouth? And rather than the Bible judging us, many Christians are now judging the Bible. We are supposed to be measured by this. And instead, many Christians are now doing the measuring and seeing if this measures up to our modern-day liberal sensibilities. And a question I have again is, why be a Christian at all? If this whole thing isn't true, how can any of it be true? If you don't believe this whole thing, why would you believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead? Why would you just pick that one out and say, well, the rest of it's not true? Are we just going by our feelings? I feel like that one's true. I feel like that one's not. Then your feelings are the authority. So why believe any of it if we can't trust all of it? Wherever you go around the world today and wherever you find the Christian church exploding with growth and people's lives being changed and, and people getting saved and people getting delivered of all kinds of stuff, You'll find the same, and it's happening around the world. Millions and millions of people getting saved around the world today and the church exploding in many parts of the world. And wherever you go and find the church exploding, I'll tell you something you also find there. They always 100% believe that this is God's word. Always. Because the moment you begin to doubt that this is God's word, your very foundation is beginning to crumble and your church has already begun to wither. It's a poison. This brings up a third reason why it is so important that we study the subject of is the whole Bible really from God? The whole thing, not just parts of it, is the whole thing really from God? And the reason is because people are remaking God according to their own image. They're remaking God according to their own ideas and their own feelings and their own opinions. Many Christians, like I said before, they're, they're picking and choosing through here. And essentially their feelings are now the authority because they go through here and they go, um, you know, I like that part about him. I like that part about him. I don't like that part about him. And they're making God according to their own ideas. They're making their God according to their own opinions. I know of churches, I know of, of authors and, and popular you know, preachers today who explicitly 
only preach almost primarily from Paul's epistles, and they avoid pretty much everything in the Old Testament, they avoid pretty much everything in the Gospels, and explicitly because they think that the picture of God we get in the epistles is the proper one. They're picking and choosing. I know other churches, I'm thinking of some of them right now, and you know people from some of these places. I'm just telling you this, not because there's a whole bunch of other bad churches out there. What I'm saying is this is really creeping into the church here in Canada where they basically only take the Gospels. We like the picture of of God and Jesus that we find in the Gospels, but we pretty much ignore everything else because we don't like that one, and their feelings determine their picture of God. They just pick what they want out of here. In other churches, these would be more in a minority who would stick more just in the Old Testament. They would avoid everything else. But people pick the, the picture of God. And the thing is that we have, to, we have to wake up and smell the coffee because the point is, God is who he is. God is who he is. And one day, each one of us here is going to have to stand before God as he really is, not as we made him up to be. So who is he really? It might feel good in the short term to pick your picture of God. I'm going to go with this one. I'm going to go with this author and these books of the Bible because that one just sort of fits my personality and the way I am and my lifestyle. I like that picture of God. And some Christians, they have a picture of God like he's Santa Claus. And every day, all he wants is for them to be rich and successful and happy. Every day, that's all God wants for you. You just need to be more successful. He wants you to make more money. He wants you to have a nicer car and a house. That's their picture of God. It feels great. Other people, they have a different picture of God. And they're more, they're more uh, you know, you know uh, social justice crusaders on the inside. That's kind of their bent. And their picture of Jesus is, he's, a, you know, the so, as I've said before, the social justice crusading action hero. And yes, by the way, Jesus does care about the poor and the needy, and so do we here at Southland. But they think that's all God cares about. And he doesn't care about actually telling people the gospel message and saving people from hell. We don't believe in that they would say. And of course, you could go on and on with the different pictures people have about God. And so they make up these pictures and they hold to them and they have a few passages in a scripture that they hold to that show them that picture of God. And then they feel, there, I've got my, I've got my picture. And fine, if that's how God really is. But is that how God really is? Because God is who he is and what you believe about him doesn't change him. And so the question of if, is this whole book actually from God really matters because nobody knows God like God. Nobody knows God better than God. In fact, the only person who can really tell us what God is like is God, not our feelings. And so if this whole book, Genesis to Revelation, not just pieces of it, But if this whole book is really from God, then our picture of God must match up with everything in here, not just pieces of it. Our picture of God in that case must certainly match up with the picture of Jesus we find in the Gospels, but it must also match up with the picture of Jesus that we find in the epistles, and it must also match up with the picture of God we find at Mount Sinai and in the Old Testament and in the book of Revelation. If this whole thing is from God, we have to take all of it. Because someday we are going to meet him and he is who he is. And this brings up my last point, why, which I don't have much time to spend here, but my last reason here, and we could go through many more of why I think this subject is so important at this time is because if it is true, the Bible is the only message of eternal life. And again, popular, some of the best-selling Christian books right now are questioning that very thing. Some of the most popular authors, some of them out of the emergent church movement in particular, are teaching people that Christianity has, you know, some real good truth about God, but we can't be too fundamental about it because, you know, some of these other religions are leading people towards God as well. The moment you believe that, it sounds good. Let's just believe the Bible and other stuff. It sounds good. Let's just be inclusive that way. The moment you believe that, you don't believe the Bible anymore because the Bible says it's the only message of of eternal life. And if these words are actually from God, then God is saying that this book has the only message of eternal life. And I could show you dozens and dozens and dozens of verses, but I'm just going to skim through here quickly too. Psalm 96 verse 5. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. 
You'll notice that the Bible, the writers of Scripture were very concerned with being nice and politically correct. For all the gods of the, of the, of the peoples might be not right in some cases, but they might lead you to the truth in others. No, no. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless, but the Lord, Yahweh alone. Yahweh is the word there. But Yahweh made the heavens. Acts 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. Speaking of Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And I could show you verse after verse after verse. We could be here for an hour just looking at verses where this book says that this is the only, that the truths in here are the only message of eternal life. So if this book really is from God, then this is the only way to God. It matters. And the moment we say, like some Christians are starting to say that maybe this isn't, you know, the only way, the moment you say that, you're not believing this at all. You may as well throw the whole thing out. So it's not what do we feel. It's not what do we figure out. It's not what's sensible. That's not what matters. It's not what's sensible. Human beings, we have a, a shocking inability to actually figure out truth just by our senses. The only way for us to discover what God is like and what eternity is like is for us to actually hear from God. So the question is, is this from God? If it is, then it is where we must go to find out right and wrong, and it is where we must go to find out what God is like, and we can't just pick and choose the parts we like the best. So, begin to get into the content of this series. How did we get the books that are here? Are there contradictions? Are there mistakes? Can we trust this thing? All that sort of stuff. And I want to start by talking about one of the, I think, one of the most, you know, uh, tricky or deceptive lies that is out there right now. And I've read this now in a number of places, and it's, it's gaining momentum. But one of the things that is being written about and being spoken in certain uh, places in the church, and it sounds so good, is that is, there's certain people that they're saying, um, it's, it's arrogant to be 100% confident that this is God's word. That's what they're saying. This is common. They're saying that people like us who say that this is God's word and we've got to believe it and the whole thing is from God, they say that's actually arrogant to say that. That's arrogant to think that you would know that. And we need to be more humble. This is the lie that's, this is building and many Christians believe this now. We need to be a little more humble about this Bible and, and you know, parts of it are from God we, but we need to really sense this thing. We need to figure it out and there's parts that are from God, parts that we just need to, to leave aside and then we can find truth in other places as well but it's arrogant to say that this is 100%, this is God's word beginning to end. Obviously, I don't want to be, I want to just be an arrogant fundamentalist. Do you? Like if that's true, I mean, Jesus told us to be humble and meek. I don't want to be uh, an arrogant fundamentalist that just ignorantly just believes this hatefully. Do you? I'm not, I don't. So it's a good question. Is it arrogant to believe that this book is all God's word? Is it arrogant to believe that? And is it humble to question it? What's the more humble thing to do? Well, it's a head scratcher, right? How are we going to figure it out? I know. I have a good idea. Let's ask Jesus what he thinks about the Bible. Is it? Who thinks that's a good idea? I mean, if you're a Christian, okay, you want to be humble? I want to be humble. And if you're a Christian, what do you believe if you're a Christian? If you're a Christian, you believe that Jesus is God, right? Yeah, it's okay. So one person, okay, good. That's a good thing to clap for. Thank you for the whistling. So if you're a Christian, you believe Jesus is God. Now, if Jesus is God, then Jesus knows everything. Now, it's fine not to believe that. You might be here today and you're not a Christian. Well, that's fine. Then what I'm going to talk about next isn't going to have any effect on you. But if you believe that Jesus is God, that's why you call yourself a Christian. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. But if you do believe that and you call yourself a Christian, that Jesus is God, then the first question we need to ask is, what did Jesus believe? Because if he's God, he knows everything. So if Jesus believes that these words are all from God, Genesis to Revelation, if he believes that, then I can't think of anything more arrogant than to say, I believe, you're Jesus, I believe you're God, Jesus, but you're wrong about the Bible. If Jesus is God, and he thinks these words are from God, he should know. Right? Now you're saying, well, how are we going to know what Jesus thinks about the Bible? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. 
Did you know that Jesus talks about the Bible a lot in the Gospels? Jesus talks about the Bible a lot. Now, he doesn't talk about the Bible as we have it here because the New Testament hasn't been, hadn't been written yet. And I'll get to the New Testament starting next week. But Jesus talked a whole lot about the Bible, the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi. He talked about it a lot. In fact, Jesus quoted from the Old Testament 78 times, not once, and that's in just a small space. And that's just the ones we have recorded in the Gospels, which only record a small bit of his life. This here is the Gospels. Just in this little place, space here, Jesus quoted 78 times from the Old Testament. Not once, not twice, not five times, not ten times. 78 times he quoted from the Old Testament. People would ask him a question. He would constantly point him back to the Old Testament. And he spoke about the Old Testament in the highest of terms. And when I say highest of terms, I don't mean he spoke of the Old Testament like it was a really good book. Over and over and over again, Jesus affirms that the Scripture, the Bible, was from God's own mouth, and it's 100% true and authoritative and inspired. And I'm going to show you some examples in just a moment, so I'll prove it to you. And I, we don't have time to nearly go through all of them. We could spend weeks just going through examples of Jesus using the Old Testament. But I'm just going to show you a few examples. But I'm going to show you this because, but I want you to stick with me here because you're going to hear the humble, arrogant comment out there. It's arrogant to think it's 100% true. The most humble thing we can do, if you believe that Jesus is God, the most humble thing we can do is just believe what he believes. I don't want to be an arrogant fundamentalist. I just want to be a Christian. So if Jesus believes these are from God, then so do I. Let's start with Matthew 4, verse 4. Temptation of Jesus, just a little bit of background. Famous story, right, Matthew 4? Devil comes to Jesus, tempts him three times, says, turn this stone into bread. Second temptation, jump off a building. Third uh, temptation, uh, worship me. He hit three times. Amazing thing in this story, Jesus is the son of God. He's the creator of the universe. Temptation, temptation, temptation. Every time the devil tempts him, uh, the amazing thing to notice is that Jesus does not answer, how Jesus does not answer him. He does not answer him and go, yeah, I don't feel like doing that. No. He doesn't answer him, no, I shouldn't do that. No, I don't feel in prayer like I should do that. Never once does he answer the devil's temptations that way. In all three cases, he answers the devil. The devil says, I want you to do this. And in all three cases, Jesus, the Son of God, creator of the universe, quotes to him a Bible verse from the Old Testament and says, I have to obey that. Now, you think if Jesus is quoting Scripture and saying that he was bound to obey Scripture, you think that maybe it's a binding for us? Let's look at this, Matthew. And then, in addition to him having to obey it, I want you to see what he says about the words of the Old Testament. Matthew 4, 4. First temptation, devil says, turn this rock into bread. But he, Jesus, answered, it is written. And now he's going to quote from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. He's not just going to give the devil some random answer. I read in a book one time. He's going to quote from the Bible. Deuteronomy 8, 3. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I've underlined it there. And that, thanks, thanks, Jeff. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In a context here, Jesus is saying that all of the words of the Old Testament come from God's mouth. I want you to notice, when he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, he's not saying, you know, that Moses, you know, every, every word that comes from Moses, that's what you've got to live by, every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is saying that the words of the Old Testament come, came from God's mouth. That's what Jesus believed. Jesus is God. He would know. Jesus is God. He would know. How about Matthew 19? Matthew 19, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they're asking him a question about divorce. They're asking him a question about divorce and they say, can we divorce our wives for any reason? And again, the interesting thing is how Jesus does not answer them. He does not say to them, um, let me see, and then try to come up with some kind of politically correct answer or kind of come up with something that's sensible or try to make morality, you know, out of some kind of logic. He doesn't say any of that. They say, can we divorce our wives for any reason? He says, what does the Bible say? See, Jesus thought that the Bible was actually binding for how we should live our lives. What does the Bible say? That's what the Son of God said. Well, can't we divorce our wives for any reason? What does the Bible say? 
And then he goes on to say some other fascinating things about the scripture. Matthew 19, 3 to 6, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that God, who created them from the beginning, made the male and female, and said, and now he's going to quote Genesis 2.24. But the thing I want you to see here is that he says that God said, and then he's going to quote Genesis 2.24. Now the interesting thing is, who wrote Genesis 2.24? Moses. Moses wrote Genesis 2.24. But Jesus does not say, I want to take you back to what Moses wrote. He could have said that because Moses did write it. That's not what Jesus said. I'm going to take you back to Genesis 22, or 2 verse 24 because I want you to see what God said. Moses wrote it, but God said it. Jesus believed that everything in here was said or was spoken by God, even though it came through human being authors. If Jesus believed that Genesis 2.24 was from God, who are we to believe anything different? Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. But what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus assumed that in questions of marriage and divorce and sexuality and big questions like that, where do you find right and wrong? He said this was the standard of right and wrong, and this was the binding thing. We don't figure it out according to modern sensibilities. We go back in here and look at what God said. It's not Moses who said this. Yeah, Moses wrote it. It's not David who wrote the Psalms. Yeah, he wrote them, but it, that's not ultimately where they come, came from. It's not Solomon ultimately where the Proverbs come from. It's not Isaiah ultimately where Isaiah comes from. Jesus said it's from God. It's from God. I'll show you one more example. Matthew cha- or Mark chapter 12, 35 to 36 Jesus is having a bit of a theological dispute with the Pharisees again, and he's going to quote David in the Psalms. I want you to see this. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can a scribe say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit. And now he's going to quote. In the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. and, and, And what Jesus is saying here is, when I'm quoting to you the Psalms, He says, I'm not just quoting to you what David thought. I'm quoting to you what David said in the Holy Spirit. They're inspired. Jesus believed that these words were inspired by God. And again, he is God, so he should know. If Jesus believes that what Moses wrote was from God's mouth and what David wrote was inspired by the Holy Spirit, then all I can do, the most humble thing I can do if I say I'm a Christ follower, is to say the exact same thing. It's not arrogant to believe what Jesus believes. And the thing you have to realize is that Jesus had the exact same Bible as we have today, obviously not the New Testament. Again, I'll get to the New Testament next week. But he had the exact same Bible as we have the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi. When you're reading in the Old Testament, you're reading the the exact same Word of God that Jesus grew up reading. They organized it a little differently. They organized it into the law and the prophets and the writings. And and we have ours organized somewhat chronologically from Genesis to Malachi in order of when when they were supposed to have occurred and all that sort of stuff. But Jesus had the exact same books. And and, And he said that they could not be broken. Do you know what? Throughout his ministry, him and his disciples, the people who were with him and the Apostle Paul, 343 times in the New Testament they quote the Old Testament and 2,309 times they allude to passages in the Old Testament. That means it's kind of like a loose quotation. They're just not doing it word for word. That means 26, 2,700 times in the New Testament they're quoting the Old Testament on all kinds of questions. And never once does Jesus or any of his disciples, the people who are actually with him, never once do they question, hmm, e, I don't know if that was from God. Never once do they say, don't be arrogant. You need to really be humble and question whether this thing is really from God. Never once ever do they ever do that. All along the way, they hold this thing up as being 100% God's word and they honor it and they consider it binding for life and practice and belief. So is it arrogant to believe against what Jesus and his disciples believed or is that true humility? 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, Paul said this, all scripture, all scripture, all of it, not just part of it, not just the parts we like, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture comes from God. It's not just human writing. 
Humans write it down, but it comes from God. And we'll talk about what that means later in the series. How did God breathe out Scripture? How did he work through humans? But all Scripture comes from God, Paul affirms here. And it's useful for reproof and correction and training in righteousness. Training in righteousness, what does that mean? You want to know the difference between right and wrong? You don't figure it out by what they think in, in school or in the newspapers or whatever. What they're trying to figure out is nice. What works in our society, that's not how you figure it out. You want to know right from wrong? It's in here. If it says it's wrong in here, it's wrong, no matter how unpopular that is. If it says it's right in here, it's right, no matter how unpopular it is. Because it's useful for training in righteousness, and it's only as we're in God's words. It's God's words that give life. It's God's words that train us up into holiness and goodness. It's God's words that give us courage to stand up for right as well. Jesus said this in John 10, 35 to 36. I want to show you this part about the scripture not being broken. And again, he's having another theological dispute here. And he ta- he's talking to the Pharisees about Psalm 82. And he says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. Okay, that's the line I want you to see there. And scripture cannot be broken. This is Jesus saying this. Jesus had the same Bible as our Old Testament. Whole thing. He had all the parts in there, even the parts people don't like. He had Leviticus. He had Leviticus. He had the minor prophets. He had the judgment stuff. Jesus is coming back one day and there's going to be blood and guts and all sorts of stuff. He had all of that stuff and he said, and the scriptures cannot be broken. What does that mean when Jesus says scriptures cannot be broken? It means that if it says in here that it's wrong, it's wrong. It means that if it says in here that something happened, it happened. And it means that if it says in here that something is going to happen, it will happen, it can't be broken because it's from God and it's eternal. Because it's from God and it's eternal. Now, of course, the objection right away is, well, what about all the weird laws in the Old Testament we don't follow anymore? And I'm going to get to that in this message yet. There were certain temporary things put in place in the Old Testament because uh, because of a covenant God had with the Jewish people before Jesus died. And we'll talk about some of that. But everywhere in here where it says something is right or wrong or that this is going to happen or that this happened, in all of those cases, it is eternal and it cannot be broken. So hugely important. And of course, those are Jesus' words, not mine. I sometimes have to mention that in some of my messages. Um, If you don't like that, you need to, I mean, you can send him an email. You can send him a prayer, whatever. You can complain to him. But this is not Chris saying you know, all of this Bible is from God and, and it can't be broken and it's eternal. That's, I'm actually just telling you what Jesus said. In fact, Jesus even believed that the historical details in the Old Testament were all true and accurate, every one. Jesus, that one's gone out of fashion. That one's really gone out of fashion. Jesus actually believed that the historical details in here were all true and all accurate. That one's gone out of fashion. I'll never forget being uh, 19 years old And I was at uh, Trinity Western University, my first year of university, and I was studying for my math and science degree. Um, But it's a Christian university, and so some people are there and they're doing theology and Bible courses and stuff. And I had a friend there, a Christian friend, good guy. He's still a good good guy today, great guy. Anyway, I remember having lunch with him the one day, and uh, he sits down and he tells me at lunch, and I I can still just remember it like it was yesterday, and he says, um, you know, know, most of the stories in the Old Testament are not actually, they didn't really happen. They're actually just allegories. And I was just, I mean, 19 years old, I'm, I'm just stunned. I mean, not stunned because I was so innocent, I'd never heard that argument before at all. I mean, I'd heard non-Christians say that all the time. I mean, obviously, they don't believe it's true. So I don't, no problem with that. Non-Christians believe it's not true. But I'd never heard a Christian that believed that. So this guy sits there, a friend of mine, good guy, great guy. He says, I, I don't actually believe that a lot of the stories in here happened. He said, and he specifically named a couple, like Job, that's clearly a mythology, and then like Jonah. He said, Jonah, I mean, guy goes into the belly of a fish for three days? Clearly that's an allegory. It didn't happen. Oh, I didn't even know what to say. I'm like, I I had no answers. I was troubled by it. Really? Maybe it is an allegory. I don't know what to say. Other Christians believe this. They're studying the word. Maybe it is an allegory. Fortunately, at that time already, I had a habit of being in God's word regularly. Too many Christians today, they're filling their minds with human words and not God's words. If this really is from God, these are the words we need to pay the most attention to, amen? So anyway, I happened to be in the Word of God, and the one day, and I don't know how long it was later, a couple days, a couple weeks, a couple of months, sometime later, I'm in the Word for my devotions, and I'm reading in Mark chapter 12, and I read about what Jesus thought about Jonah. So I have this in my head, now kind of just as, not something I'm thinking about all the time, but it was just in the back of my head, this seed of 
Did these, you know, can we actually trust this thing? Did these events really happen or are they just allegories? And how would we know which ones are allegories and which ones are true? And then I, I had this great devotion time and I came across Matthew, sorry, not Mark, Matthew 12, 38 to 42, and I read what Jesus believed about the story of Jonah. And it just gave me so much happiness. It still does to this day. Because I didn't know what to believe. Well, what should I believe? Maybe it was an allegory. Other Christians believe that. And then I read what Jesus believes. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, speaking to Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the moment I read that, I just had this Holy Spirit joy just well up inside of me. I just had so much joy. Because Jesus believed Jonah really happened. And again, he's God. He should know. Jesus believed Jonah happened. He said, just like Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days, so the Son of Man is going to be in the, in the earth for three days dead. Now, if you don't want to take Jonah literally, if Jonah is just an allegory, then so is Jesus dying on the cross and ri rising from the dead. Because he said, just like Jonah, that's going to be me. If Jonah is an allegory, if the Old Testament is all allegory, then so is Jesus rising from the dead. That's why I say you can't just pick and choose. It all goes together. The Christian faith is not built on nice allegories that teach us moral truths. It's supposed to be built on actual truths. If the stuff in here did not actually happen, we have no hope for after dead. That's what Paul said. Because if the stuff in here didn't actually happen, we have no hope that heaven's for real or that forgiveness is real or that the resurrection is real either. So Jesus said, just like Jonah was in the belly of a fish, so I'm going to be in the grave. Jonah really happened. And then Jesus goes on in the rest of the passage. And he says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Jesus is assuming that there was actual people in Nineveh who actually heard Jonah preach. And it's so real, he says, that some of those people who repented at Jonah's preaching, they're going to be up at the judgment rebuking some of you Pharisees because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, but you won't repent at the preaching of the Son of Man. It's all real. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And then Jesus goes on to confirm other Old Testament history. He says, the queen of the south, speaking of the queen of Sheba, the queen of Sheba will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus says the queen of Sheba was real, Solomon was real, and the moment my eyes were open to this, I just had so much, I had so much joy in my devotions, because it was like a weight lifted off. I said, Jesus, if I'm a Christian, I'm just following you, and I've settled in my heart that you're God. That means if you were settled in your heart that all this stuff is true, so am I. If you're settled in your heart that all this stuff is true, so am I. I don't have to pick through here and figure out what's true and what's not because in that case, it's my feelings that are the authority. I've got a bigger authority. I'm measured by this, not this measured by my feelings. And that's freeing. And the more I read through the Gospels, I was just set free then for a whole while there. Matthew 24, 15, Jesus affirms that the prophet Daniel was a real person. Luke 17, 26 to 27, Jesus affirms that Noah and the flood really happened. Luke 17, verse 32, uh, Jesus affirms that Sodom and Gomorrah and, uh, you know, the Lot's wife turning to a pillar of salt. Like, if anything is an allegory, that's going to be an allegory. And he, he affirms that that's true. He says, in Luke 17, 32, he says, remember Lot's wife. And don't be like that. Remember her. And in many other places in the Gospels, he affirms the historical existence of Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and many of the most important characters in the Old Testament and the things they did. Jesus believed that this was God's word, that it was all true, and that it's accurate. So if Jesus believed it and you're a Christian, you either have to believe that or you have to throw the whole thing out because then Jesus was wrong. And if Jesus was wrong, he's not God. Why call yourself a Christian? We can trust this book just based on what Jesus said. Now, of course, we haven't talked about the New Testament yet, and we'll get to that. But Jesus believed the Bible to be true. You know, in Matthew 5, 24 to 27, or no, sorry, 7. Matthew 7, 24 to 27, I'll end here. Matthew 7, Jesus tells a parable about a man who builds his house on a rock. And in a parable, the rock is the word of God. And he says, anybody who builds their life on a rock 
on the words of God is like a wise man who built his house on a solid foundation and when the storms came and the winds beat against that house, it did not fall. But the foolish man who did not build his life on a rock, it might be politically correct, it might be popular, you might not catch as much flack, but if you build your house and your life and your family and your job and your career on anything but this, it will collapse. Jesus said, this is from God, it's, it can't be broken, it's eternal. You build your house on this, it's a wise man building on a foundation. When the storms come, storms in your relationships, storms in your finances, storms in your circumstances, storms of the culture and the people around you and the hatred and the, and, the, and the nations and the wickedness all around us, when the storms come, the church and the people and the families that are built on this book and courageous to stand for it, he says, will stand. And so, one of the reasons I'm preaching this series, again, some of you, get, you're, you're already there. I'm, I have confidence. But I'm preaching this series because you can't be too confident in this book. You can't be too confident in this book. If we're going to give our lives for this thing, we have to be confident in it. But it's about more than confidence. I'm hoping that this week, and I know many of you are doing this already, many Christians today, you say, is this God's word? Yeah, it's God's word. And if you looked at their time, you'd find that they spend way more time with human words than with God's words. This is one of God's greatest gifts to us. Communication from God to us. Words that are eternal and that have life. Jesus said these words are life. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You can have life by feeding on these words and obeying them. It's time for us as Christians to not just say this is the word of God, it's time for us to elevate it to that place and obey it and meditate on it and be in it daily because it's only as you're in here, Paul says, it's for training in righteousness. It's only as you are meditating and in God's words that you begin to be able to discern right from wrong. You begin to get a strong backbone in our society to stand for truth instead of compromise and deception. Bow your head with me and close your eyes. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Thank you for your word. It is a gift. Thank you. Jesus, I pray that here at Southland we could have our church truly founded on your word. I pray that you would give us a, a Holy Spirit confidence in the words that are in here. Lord Jesus, our, our, our nation rages against some of the truths that are in here. Jesus, give us a fear of the Lord instead of the fear of man. The only antidote, Father, to the fear of man, the only antidote to compromise and deception and immorality, the, the antidote is to eat your word. Your word is life. Your word is truth. And I just pray, God, that as I go through this series too, Lord, I pray that we would get a love for your words. Give us a love for your words. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.